You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hey, everybody. This is Wake Up Call, the podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previn, and this is another edition of the Hashtag Femme Doctor series. And joining me today is my special guest, Rosianne Roeder, MD, who is a plastic surgeon in Hickory, North Carolina. Welcome, Dr. Roeder. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. I can't wait. I'm so excited because if anybody who knows me knows that one of my very favorite topics is plastic surgery. (laughs) So... Um, I've been very open about things I've had done. It makes it sound like I've had so much done, but I get Botox. I've had mm-hmm. some fillers. I had my lips filled before I actually need them done. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I had lipo. Yeah. So I've been very open about that. And, and one of the things, one of the reasons for that is because, and this is something you and I have talked about privately mm-hmm. is i it bothers me that there's this stigma associated with plastic surgery, even if it's something as simple as Botox. Yeah. And, and I, I do think that the attitudes are somewhat different on the West coast but we're here on the East coast. And I feel like my experience is just, it's all very hush hush. And what do you think about that? I definitely think there's a regional difference for sure. Um, But I'm going to check all those boxes that you checked. All right. I have Botox. The first time I had Botox, I was 37 years old. Um, One of my chief residents who happens to be a plastic surgeon near you in Long Island, New York, he was the first person to inject me and I was hooked I never thought I was going to do it, but I was like, sure, you can practice on my face, no problem, but definitely was hooked on it. I've had lip fillers and some fillers to my tear trough and a little bit to my cheeks. And I've also had lipo, not once, but twice. Um, I have no shame in saying it. I can relate to my patients because of it. I tell them what my experiences were. And I think that that helps them through it. Uh, But yes, a lot of people don't want to talk about what they have done. I think in the West Coast, people are much more forward about it. I think it's the Hollywood culture and the influencer culture. I don't think it's as taboo. Especially, I think in higher economic earning sectors, in more conservative areas, people just don't want anybody to know. And I get that a lot. I want like, I want to look natural, right? Yeah, yeah. Sure. You know, I'm not going to let you walk out of here looking completely, um, abnormal. It's just a better version of you. And I think that there's nothing wrong with having a procedure or something to make yourself feel better. Well, I also think that in California, especially I visited LA a little while back and you could see everyone's plastic surgery a mile away. Mm -hmm. And I sort of think that's how they intended it. I think they want to look that way. I'm just guessing. I mean, I didn't ask anybody, but like you said here, in New York and on the East coast, I think it's more common for people to want to have a more natural look. I'm not sure how I feel. I think I would say I probably would want to look more natural as well. Yeah, I think so. I think what we're trying to do is just get a, 
what we think is the refreshed version of ourselves, right? What I have is a lot of women who are in their 50s and 60s um, who are like, I don't want to look 20. I just want to look a little bit more refreshed. I don't want to look tired all the time. And I want to do something about these wrinkles. And now people are starting earlier. I have 20 year olds that come to me for small things that they want to improve upon um, or at least the rest, you know, like just they want to maintain what they have. And there are things that are great in their 20s and the 30s and your 40s and your 50s and the changes, you know. Um, but every now and then there's somebody that comes in and they're like, yes, no, I do really want the big breasts. Like I do want everybody to know that I got, you know, a breast augmentation. As much as I've had somebody come to me and say, I have dinner with my pastor every Sunday night and I don't want him to know that I got a breast augmentation, you know? So there's all those different aspects of it. And it's tailoring to the person and what they want and what their goals are really. Just tell her to wear black and baggy clothes when she goes out to dinner with the pastor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. You, to be able, you can't just turn those things on and off. Right. Um, but there's so many things that I want to talk to you about, but maybe we could just start out a little bit with your background. And I'm always curious with my femme doctors, did you know, always know that you wanted to be a doctor? No. Um, I actually, at the age of 13, wanted to be an economist and a lawyer. Oh, well, you then, dodged a bullet there. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, then I ran across this book and it kind of changed what I wanted to do. I was in seventh grade and we had a um, health class. And in the health class, was uh, we, we had this project to do. It was going to go on our science fair for that year at school. And mind you that I was born in Brazil and grew up there. So I'm talking about Brazilian standards. So it might be a little bit different than what Americans are used to. But um, I happened to be given this book by one of my family members. I mean, family friends. She's like a family member, really. She's my, like my sister's like godmother. And it was called Beyond Love. And it's by this guy called Dominique Lampierre. And he talked about the HIV epidemic in a really, really interesting and creative way. There were multiple stories that then intertwined, right? So it, and you kind of didn't know how they were going to intertwine until they did. But it talked from anything from the first documented HIV case that was traced back um, in the United States, um, one in Israel, it traced back to Mother Teresa and how she ended up in the United States running an asylum for HIV patients in New York. And the first person that found the virus here in the United States in California, and then the two researchers that um, documented the virus and it's the way it gets transmitted and its structure. So all that was in that book and I found it fascinating. And all of this was done through epidemiology. So I started thinking, well, I wanna do this. I wanna be an epidemiologist. I wanna trace these outbreaks. I wanna find out these people and find about their stories. Um, so that's kind of where I went from there. It kind of changed what I wanted to do. And my focus was, I'm gonna be an epidemiologist. I'm gonna be a researcher. I'm gonna trace viruses, you know? just like COVID, I guess, around the world and do public health. And so I went to college and then I got my master's in public health. And then I got a little bit more ambitious. <laughs> um, I realized that there was only so much you could do with that. And to grow in the field, you needed an MD or a PhD. And I was definitely more of the MD kind. Like I love talking to people, I love interacting with people, I love learning about their stories and getting a PhD and doing more and more things in the labs just, just wasn't really truly me. So I went to medical school to become an infectious disease doctor. Okay. 
So naturally we have to know how on earth did you end up being a plastic surgeon? Right. Um, I started with my medicine rotation, uh, internal medicine rotation, and I just didn't like love it. I'm like, you know, we're going into these rooms or we're talking about all the sorts of different things that could be happening with people and what their differential diagnosis um, and multiple different ways to treat them. And at the end of the day, you know, you gave them a pill for their blood pressure and then you had to wait for them to come back and see you in three months and their blood pressure would still be high. They were still like haven't changed their diet, um, you know, hadn't exercised. We're not taking their pills reliably. And I realized that I was not that person. I was the person that liked to see a problem and fix it. So, but it was a kind of like gradual thing. Cause the next thing I did was OBGYN and I loved the surgeries. I did not like the birthing part that much, but I love the surgeries. And then I went into general surgery and I'm like, I found my people. They're just like me. They're practical. They're like, okay, well, it could be these three things. We'll get our imaging, we'll do our exam. And then, you know, the problem, like you have appendicitis, you take out the appendix, you're done. Right? Yeah. So I love that about surgery um, that you're, I guess I'm a fixer. And I just couldn't imagine going through three years of residency and doing the internal medicine thing. It's just not my personality. Um, and then throughout general surgery, I thought, cause I had a two week elective rotation when I was in medical school in plastics. And I just thought it was so diverse. Like you're operating everywhere in the body. Um, you have all sorts of organ systems and you're again, like kind of the ultimate fixer. Like you have to know anatomy really well. You have to understand surgery and all the other fields because when another specialist calls you, it's because they need your help because something didn't necessarily go well and you need to fix that problem. So plastic surgery is more than just the cosmetic stuff on the reconstructive end. Like you need to know five or six different ways to fix a problem and then tailor it to that patient, which then became super interesting. And as I did my general surgery, I found that this is what I wanted. The plastic surgeons were happier. They were working with all kinds of population, men, women, kids, um, and they were problem solving all over the place. So I really like that. Well, I've heard some surgeons or, or some people that thought they wanted to go into surgery and then change their minds would say, well, I realized something about surgery was you, you're a, exactly what you said. You're a fixer. So once you fix the problem, you're done and you don't really develop these long-term relationships with the patients. Right. So did you, at that time, did you feel like that part was lacking for you? Uh, not so much. I think it just gives you the opportunity to know more people. Um, and plastic surgery is a little bit different. I think we do establish a little bit longer relationships in terms of our breast reconstruction patients, for example, like while I'm taking them through, through their reconstruction, I'm with them for like a year, if not a year and a half. Um, and then they do come back for tweaks and things like that. Even my breast augmentation patients, like I'll offer to see them once a year. Some of them are very diligent about it. Some of them are not. Um, I do wounds here. That's the great thing about being a small town. My practice is very varied, but I do a lot of wound care. So I'll see people on a regular basis. And the other great thing about being in a small town is that you treat someone and then they know about you from their aunt, you know, their friend, um, their babysitter, their kid's child that was bit by a dog that you fix, right? So like now I'm meeting like second generations of people. I'm meeting all their friends and their families. So you get to know people, I think, 
over a period of time. I think being in a small town kind of has helped in that sense that it's not just fix and go. Like there are other relationships that have developed. You're the country plastic surgeon or the family plastic surgeon. Pretty much. And, you know, it's awesome to be able to do that in a small scenario because people travel a lot for care. And we in my town have like a hundred mile catch radius, you know, of people that come here to have healthcare because it's a town that has a lot of established practitioners in healthcare that gets referred in. And we're sort of smack in the middle of Winston-Salem and Charlotte. So there are big hubs around. And I do have patients that sometimes need to travel to even as far as Raleigh and go to Duke or UNC. Um, But it's nice to have an option for them to stay local to do things that are pretty straightforward. Um, And I have done things here that nobody has ever done before, which has been exciting too. Like what? I did a big chest wall reconstruction the other day. young lady who had a big cancer on her left side, unfortunately very locally advanced, had had chemotherapy and radiation. And by the time that everything was said and done, almost all of her left chest was gone. And I did the first um, omental flap reconstruction to the chest. The omentum is like the fat that stays in the abdomen. It's a very interesting fun organ actually. And you kind of pull it from the belly and put it onto the chest and then skin graft it. Um, And it's an amazing reconstruction and nobody had ever done one in town. So that was great. It's actually an organ. Yes. It's very dynamic. It's um, so if you have an infection and let's say you perforate your stomach or something like you have an ulcer that perforates the omentum kind of finds its way over to that perforation and seals it. And it has like Um, growth factors and lots of things we don't really truly understand, but it works as almost like a physiological organ and has stem cells and help heal things and block things off. It's like it knows where it's supposed to go to help you um, temporize some of these things until I guess the surgeons or the doctors can get to it. Um, It's very highly vascularized. It's great um, as sort of like a filler (laughs) for certain things. So it was like kind of fun to do it. The general surgeon did it with me and he was like, wow, that's great. You know, um, did you get to save it for anything? I mean, could you use it for anything? Like stem cells? Um, you can, I think there's some people that are looking into it, but pretty much we just transfer the whole thing as like a glob of fat, honestly, it almost looks like that. Um, and you place it over the chest and then you put a skin graft on it and it worked beautifully. It's a very fantastic way to reconstruct things. It's not really all that complicated. It's just that sometimes people in small towns are not as adventurous to do big reconstructions like that. They sort of, they get sent out, you know, you have to have somebody who wants to do things that are a little bit more edgy or, um, you know, to do it. And I guess I'm young enough that I'm just like, yeah, like I just did this, you know, when I was in training, this is fine. It's a great way to do it. Um, I I love the things that doctors get excited about. Oh yeah. (laughs) Oh, the other thing I did, that was fun the other day. I did an oncoplastic reduction, which is basically doing a breast reduction and at the same time, removing a a breast cancer. So the general surgeon comes in, we work on it together so you can get all the cancer out. And then I use the rest of the tissue um, to pretty much do a breast reduction. So if you have somebody who's a little bit big breasted and they don't want to have a total mastectomy and they don't want to just have a lumpectomy, because they want their breasts to kind of be in the right position again, then you do that. So we did an oncoplastic on one side and the other side did a standard breast reduction and she's doing great. You know, she gets two things at once, which is a kind of a fun thing to do. It's creative and it gets the job done from the cancer perspective and also improves her quality of life. 
So despite being in a, a small, small town, which I'm saying in finger quotes, you really get to do a lot. You, you might even be doing more than what some of the plastic surgeons in my neighborhood are doing, because if it's not their jam, they're just going to pass it off to someone else. Right. And it could be that I'm young and I have two partners have been in practice for more than 15 years. One of them is 26 and the other one's almost 20. And, you know, as I guess as you develop your practice gets more established and you're older, you get more selective as to what you want to do. And I've been doing this for three and a half years. So I still like to do like, I feel like I have a lot of skills that I can use. Right. So I still like to do the reconstruction stuff, the big, the big um, cases. And I feel like I'm capable of providing that. So I will, there are things that I don't do because they definitely would be to the detriment of the patient. Like I don't do a lot of free flap reconstruction or things like that. If I don't feel like I have the right environment to provide it for them, if there's somebody that's an hour down the road, that's as way more experienced and is going to do it, but it does keep things diverse. Like, cause I see a lot of kids I take care of a lot of kids. I take care of hundred-year-olds. I do skin cancer. I do breast cancer reconstruction. Um, I'll do uh, hand surgery. I'll do facial fractures. So it keeps it interesting uh, to not just do like your breast augmentations all day. Yeah. So I, I think that's important for the public to know too, is that even if they're against, if they have something against um, women, you know, filling their lips and doing things that sometimes people consider to be vain or superficial, plastic surgeons are still doing a lot of really wonderful things for other people that just want to look and feel normal. Yeah. I mean, I had a patient come to me the other day and said that I made her feel like a woman again after reconstruction. And that's great. But you know, and that was from a reconstruction standpoint, but the same thing happens with Botox and fillers. Um, because there are people that come almost self-conscious, like, I know it's vain for me to be doing this. But the thing is that it's all about you feeling good about yourself, right? If you have that self-confidence, whatever it is that gets you there, that's going to make you a better mother, a better partner, a better employee or employer, right? It's just going to make you a better person in society because you have the person, you have the confidence to bring your best self forward. So I don't think anybody should really care what anybody else thinks if this is what makes them feel good about themselves. And I do think, and I have a lot of male patients, by the way, that do cosmetic stuff too, but I do think that there's a double standard for women and how women look in the workplace and people's perception of even their competence based on their looks. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're already dealing with uh, a gender gap anyway in the workplace. And then it's uh, somebody that I'm a big fan of is Madonna. And she's always said that you're not allowed to get old as a woman in our society. You're not allowed to get old. You're just expected to just fade away once you start showing some wrinkles. Right. Ageism is a big thing. And I knew, I know that men experience it too, but not as much, right? Everybody has always known that if you're Richard Gere, you could have gray hair and look very handsome, right? Forever. Same thing with any of these, the other aging actors, Robert Redford, right? Um, Harrison Ford. But then as we age as women, you kind of don't have as much of a role. People don't know where you fit in society. This matriarchal part is not really supposed to be like sexy or attractive, right? And that's not the case. I think that um, we really need to kind of push forward to realize that there's so much value in the experience that you bring despite of your gender. Um, 
and really fight some of that ageism everywhere. But yes, women who are older are discarded and men are valued as wise. Yes, or silver foxes. We call them like George Clooney comes to mind, Mm -hmm. who really needs some Botox these days. Love you, George, (laughs) but you need some Botox. Well, I'm like looking at myself here as you're recording. I'm like, when did my Botox wear out? But (laughs) well, I think you look great. See, so so we were I think we are harder on ourselves. You know, I'll look at my face and say, oh, I've got this line or, you know, my lips Mm -hmm. need to be plump or something like that. And someone else will say, I don't even see that. I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. No, all the time, all the time. Um, But I have people that come to me and they're like, oh, your skin is so good and stuff like that. So I tell them what I do. Um, I don't want to overwhelm them, you know, because it's it's different when you've been in this environment for a long time. I'm like I said, I'm from Brazil originally. Right. And lots of people know that Brazil has lots of plastic surgery and things like that. So I remember my mom starting on retin-a when she was in her 40s and how that really helped her skin and people were asking her if she had a facelift and all she did was use a retinoid right so when i started getting like 35 i'm like i'm gonna use that retinoid too and that definitely helps so i start with that and i tell people like if there's anything that you're going to get if you're over the age of 30 it's tretinoin or retin-a you know it's it's like essential like it does so many good things it's it's great um So that's the number one thing, but like I try the microneedling, I do the peels, I'll do the Botox, like I've done, I've dabbed in fillers. So there's, there's things that you need to invest on if you're going to keep up with it and and genetics. And then what you do on the inside, drinking water, having a good diet and all that plays a role into it too. Yeah. Let's talk about all that because uh, something that I learned, my, my first foray into this world was Botox. Mm -hmm. Uh, Somebody had told me, a doctor had told me, but he wasn't a plastic surgeon. He had said, you don't need Botox till you're 35. Well, when I finally did go to a plastic surgeon for Botox, he couldn't believe someone told me that, but that's another conversation. (laughs) And so I started getting Botox at 35. I really didn't do other things though, like facials and skincare treatments. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't really do those. And I did start to figure out on my own that you can keep getting Botox, but it's not the only thing, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not going to just fix everything. So maybe what we could talk about is your opinion about, you know, when is the right time for women to start thinking about, um, skincare treatments and, and maybe what kind of skincare treatments and Botox and things of that nature. And I know that this, a lot of this depends on the individual because we don't all look the same. We don't all age the same. There's different genetics and other factors, but generally what are the different things that we should be doing as women for anti-aging and to look our best? Yeah. So a big thing right now is prejuvenation, right? So it's the new thing. It's getting people while they're young to maintain what they have. So it, it's a big new and upcoming thing. And, and you're probably going to be seeing more about it on Instagram and people talking about it on, on tele, in television. Um, so prejuvenation. So I guess that could happen whenever, right? But uh, there are sorts of general guidelines. When I talk to my patients, and I really just didn't come up with this, I'm pretty sure I heard it somewhere. So Whoever came up with this, probably going to come give me a call in a minute. But I always tell them that think of your bed, right? In your room, you have a bedspread. 
some kind of comforter, right? And your sheets on your bed, you have your mattress, and then you have your box spring. So it doesn't matter how much filler you put in your face or what your bone structure is, because if your comforter or your sheets are wrinkled, nobody cares what's underneath, right? If you could have a sleep number bed, doesn't matter, right? So you need to start from, you have to, you have to tackle all of those areas and they all age at different, you know, I guess times in line. But when you're in your twenties, generally, mostly what you need is a moisturizer. You have youth on your side, your collagen is great. You know, there's not much that you need to do. So you really need to moisturize and protect from the sun. Everybody should be using sunscreen. I don't care if you're seven years old, like you need to put sunscreen on your kids because that the sun damage starts when you're young and it's cumulative over time. So whatever age you are, sun, you know, having a protection from the sun is the most important thing. So you need that at any age. But then when you're 20, you got to make sure you're moisturizing and people have different types of skin. So that's when you have to get tailored based on either your dermatologist, an esthetician or a plastic surgeon. If you have combination skin, oily skin, dry skin, what's good for you, right? That will change. As we age and get more into our thirties, then you need something that is going to start keeping up your collagen and your elastin. So you might need to start looking into retinols, retin-A's, vitamin C, and things like that. And if you continue to build on that, you know, then you're going to need some, a little bit more, you can do your hyaluronic acids and things like that as an adjunct, as you get a bit older, but you need to maintain moisture in the skin. It's the main thing, right? You want to avoid wrinkling, <laughs> right? You want to make sure your bedspread is nice and flat. And that as you age might involve more invasive things like doing chemical peels or doing microneedling or doing a, a laser, um, so that all is what gets tailored. It's, there's very few 20 year olds that really need a lot of things to move their collagen. But I mean, it doesn't mean that you can't start taking care of it. Um, at any age, you can work on drinking enough water and having a really good diet. What about smoking? Smoking is terrible for you, right? In every for so many reasons, right? If you want for so many reasons, but if you want to, if you want something that's going to age you fast, smoking is going to do it. Smoking in the sun right? Tanning beds, um, a lot of sun exposure and smoking. They're just terrible for you. Um, you can get a smoker's face to look really great, but it's going to take a deep CO2 laser, which has a lot of downtime, you know? Um, and it's expensive. Um, does it so hurt? Oh yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> People are, are raw, you know, but like you can see some of those leathery faces definitely improve over time, but you know, Smoking is definitely a, a bad thing for your skin. And yeah, I mean, we, we've all seen that lady on the beach that looks, <laughs> she does look like leather and she's yeah. got a deep, dark tan and she's got a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. <laughs> you think, wow, she, that lady has had a, a she's done a lot of living. Right. And which it shows. Is, which is great. Right. But then they come to you and they're like, fix me. And you're like, well, I mean, there are things that I can do to improve upon this but are you willing to give up the sun and the cigarette to maintain it? And sometimes they are and sometimes they're not, but as long as they understand the limitations of what can be done, right? Because people come here and think you just have a magic eraser and that's not the case, you know? Um, 
We just want to really improve and build on things. But I do think prejuvenation is the key. Like if you're in your 30s and you're worried about and you're starting to see some signs, then get an early consult with a cosmetic dermatologist or a plastic surgeon so that they can start guiding you in the right direction as to how to maintain what you have. And I don't think I really appreciated that completely until I got my first Botox injection. (laughs) You know, even though I was doing the tretinoin and all of that. um, And I did changed my diet in 2019 and people have been talking about my skin. And I don't know if it's a combination of that plus the things that I've been doing over time. Um, but yeah, like if you're just going to eat Bojangles all day, what are Bojangles? Oh, this is totally a Southern thing. Um, it's just a, a fast food place that sells a lot of chicken biscuits. Delicious. Ooh, that sounds good. We'll have to have that when I come visit. <laughs> you know, it's great to have it every now and then you probably shouldn't just do it, but you know, it's kind of the oily fried foods and things like that. They eventually, you know, make their way to your pores. <laughs> oh God, you're killing me. I've heard this. I hear this a lot. You know, this isn't something mm-hmm. new. It's incredible how important diet really is. Yeah. Well, let and me ask- with water. Yes. Water too. I think all, most of us are dehydrated. I, I walk around dehydrated all the time. I don't know how I don't die, but um, I wanted to ask you about collagen specifically. Yeah. I, I think I've heard and read different things that you can't, um, can you make new collagen sure. in your body? Oh, you can. So it's not like that we've got born with all we're ever going to have. So you can reproduce the collagen. Yeah, absolutely. So part of, um, So we don't know exactly the mechanism, but we do know based on some studies that even using fillers, because they're hyaluronic acid base, which is just a molecule that is, um, helps with elasticity in your skin um, and plumpness and hydration of the skin. And the fillers are made of that. Just having fillers injected with hyaluronic acid tends to simulate some local collagen production. Microneedling, which is simply causing injury to the skin by having multiple needles being inserted, which is what it is, that just having injury to the skin will stimulate your body to heal, which will build new collagen. That's how you create a scar, right? You just, a scar is nothing more than you bring in healing tissue and cells that produce collagen. So you can definitely build collagen. What happens is we lose collagen at a higher speed along with elastin, which is another molecule that makes your skin um, taut as we age. Um, but there's several of these um, you know, energy devices and um, microneedling devices that stimulate that. And so does like um, vitamin A. Part of that topical treatment is that it helps turn over your skin. That's why you peel with it when you first start using it. It also stimulates collagen down in your skin. So the, the question is, you know, not that you can't make anymore, is that you're just losing it a little bit faster than when you were younger. So you need to keep up with it. You need to keep ways to keep stimulating it. And eventually we kind of, you know, you hope that you keep it even, that you don't lose the battle, right? But yeah. that's the whole thing with aging. Like it's so multifactorial, right? So, you know, there's these things that are on that bedspread. And then when you start looking at that mattress, that mattress is sort of the fat pads that we have in our face and the muscle structures. And we lose fat in our face, which is not where we want to lose it, right? We can't lose it anywhere else that we want to, but on the face, it starts hollowing out, right? Hollowing out the eyes, the cheeks. So that's where your fillers come in. And that's sort of what I talk about the mattress. Like that's where your fillers are going to go, your fat grafting um, and all that to kind of make that um, a little bit plumper because 
it's not just a combination of losing the collagen, you're also losing um, these fat pads in the face, which is what shows. So what is the, um, the droopiness of the skin attributable to, is that a collagen issue? Yeah, it's a collagen and elastin issue. Like you just lose the elasticity of the skin. And then part of it too, is that it descends because you're losing those fat pads. So the skin kind of comes down with it. So it sounds logical to me that we could just completely reverse aging. If we find some way to keep the fat pads where they're supposed to be and keep the collagen pumping. Correct. But that's not really true. Hmm. I mean, you know, at some point our DNA is going (laughs) to fail, right? (laughs) Our muscles, our bones. I mean, it's just kind of, if we knew how to arrest aging, um, I think we would all be doing it. Um, it's so multifactorial, right? Um, we just, we don't lose as much bone mass in our face as we do in, in some other parts of our body as we age. But I'm pretty sure that if we lived long enough, we would, that would go away too, right? Um, so it would be great if we could figure out a way to permanently stop that loss or to continue the turnover to be greater, but we do have some tools and you got to use the most of that. And I think that if you start when you don't really need it, it's much harder when you're like 75 and you haven't really done much. And you've been here in North Carolina, grew up in a farm, right? There was no sunscreen 70 years ago. There was nothing that you could have done. Um, and, and you smoked, for example, and now you're trying to do something about it. Well, we can make you better. It's probably surgery, even though they don't want surgery, right? It's probably a facelift, neck lift with some fat grafting that is going to get them their best results. But sometimes people are not ready for that. And they want to try some of these other devices. It's just that it's a more subtle change. And that might be acceptable for some people or not, and, and not for others, right? There are tools to make it a little bit better. But yes, the aging process is going to continue after a procedure. And there's some maintenance that goes with it, which is frustrating to tell people, right? Because yeah. they just want to be like, hey, doc, what do you see? Fix it. And I'm like, no, what do you see that bothers you? Because I want to focus on what bothers you. And then I'll tell you if I see the same thing. Um, and then let's work on this is what we got to do for now to make it better. And this is what we got to do to maintain it because it's a lifelong thing. Yeah. I have a lot of friends who have gone to a plastic surgeon and they want to ask that question. What do you think I need? Mm-hmm. And, you know, a good plastic surgeon won't say, well, you need to do this and this and this and this. They will ask the question you just posed is, well, what's, what's bothering you? And I, I can understand both sides of it. I understand why you as the physician don't want to just give them a laundry list of what you think they need. But at the same time, I can understand even myself, I would want to ask someone, well, what do you think? I mean, what could you see in my face as a professional, as someone who does this all the time, some subtle changes that I could make that would just make me look rejuvenated? you know, not necessarily younger, although I know that's part of the goal for me, it's just to look good. You know, I want to age well, I know I'm not going to look 20. I'm not trying to look 20. I just want to look good and age well. So I think that's usually what people really mean when they go to you and say, tell me what I need doc. Yeah. And, And it happens all the time. It even happens today. Right. Um, what I do is I like to take like a top down approach. I give them a mirror. I take a, basically a long Q-tip 
And I say, well, let's go down, you know, from your forehead to your chin or to your neck, sometimes up to the sternum, because neck is a big thing right now. Uh, people are on Zoom all the time. Let me tell you, I've been doing so many neck lifts. <laughs> wow. Yeah different story. But, um, you know, I think you have to have an organized approach as how you address people, especially if they don't necessarily know, or if they don't want to tell you right away, because I think most people know what bothers them, but they want you to kind of give them the affirmation that what they see is actually really happening. Right. So I think it's like a, a team approach. So I'm like, okay, well, let's look at your forehead. Is there anything about your forehead that bothers you? No. Okay. Let me tell you what I see. You don't have any vertical or horizontal lines. Okay. Well, I think that's great. I'm like, Oh, your brow, it's in the right position. Or I tell them your brow is not in the correct position. This is what you got to do to fix it. This is what I can do with Botox. This is what I can do with surgery. And then we move on. And then we kind of come down to talk about, and then things get, as you're talking to people, it surfaces. They're like, yeah, I really think my eyes look tired. And I said, okay, well, this is what I see on your eyes. And this is how I think we can fix it. This is what we can do without surgery. This is what we can do with surgery. And then we kind of go down and talk about it. Like nasal labial folds, for example, right? People come here and are like, can you fill this? And, you know, 15 years ago, that's what we would do. We would put fillers here. Everybody would be sort of like quasi happy about it. Not truly. Right. Now we know that we get these lines because our fat pads in our cheek are descending. So what you really are losing is you're flattening out your face. Your face is becoming a little bit more oval as it goes along and you're, you're missing this tissue here. So now we know where we have to start is by replacing the cheek and augmenting the cheeks to stent that open a little bit. Right. Yeah. And then we address the nasal your folds if we need to. So like, Plastic surgeon dermatology also evolve, you know, so we're always constantly learning and changing the way we address things and understanding aging. Um, so what my job, I feel, is to try to tell the patients, yes, you see the problem here, but the problem is actually starting right here. You know, this is where it starts. And that's kind of where the education point is and telling them, yeah, it's great. I can replace all of, I can put fillers or fat graft and replace all this loss of volume that you're having. But if we don't do wrinkle your skin here, nobody's going to see it. Nobody's going to care, you know, yeah. and it takes a lot more product sometimes than people think. And I tend to be conservative and try to go stepwise and other people just load lots of product to begin with. It depends on the personal approach, depends on what the patient needs. And that's the one things I try to listen when they say, I'm going to look natural. I assume that they want subtle changes that we can make over time. So people don't notice it. Yeah. What about the jowl area? Oh, so yeah, hard, right? So when people come to me and they're like, oh, I want this. I'm like, okay, so you want a facelift? No, no, no. I don't want a facelift. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, there's a couple of things we can do. <laughs> um, and you can disguise it by doing fillers. So if you have jowls, but you have loss of volume right here, you can fill the chin and that will kind of give it a more rounded. You're not doing anything about this part of the face that has come down, but you're camouflaging it by putting fillers right in this area. You can use energy devices. Like we have one in our office. That's a microneedling radio frequency device. So it will insert some needles and then it will um, give you heat and that heat will stimulate your own collagen and elastin. So it takes a few months for it to build up and it does a good job of doing like a very subtle, you know, um, actually sometimes it's not even that subtle. It's really good tightening around the, the jowls. Um, 
There are other things like all therapy that have been, you know, done where you definitely can see some skin tightening around that area. But these are good for people who have like mild to moderate you know, jowling, <laughs> let's put it that way. Yeah. It's probably, I've had all therapy. Yeah. It's so yes, it's, I think it's for people more like, you know, our age, like someone who's in between their, their, I say 30 to 50, like it should be like for that age group. It's very hard to get really great results and people that are a bit older, especially if they haven't really done anything before. And the energy devices only last so long. Right. Um, but there are options um, while you're younger to have more non-invasive things. Yeah. Um, have you had all therapy? No. Oh man, that hurts. <laughs> yeah. That. Um, so we used to have it when I was a resident, like in our office, and we used to hear that quite a bit. Um, I do want to, like, as part of my own like prejuvenation thing, I do want to have this a device that we have in my office. I just kind of been waiting for the right time to do it because you get a little bruised and swollen from it, and I want to try to do it right before a weekend and stuff like that. Is this the old therapy device or something this, else? This is called profound. Yeah. It's a microneedling radio frequency device. And there's other things similar to it, um, out there, but it's, it's, it's a really good treatment. And I think it's especially great for people who are like 35 to 45 and preventing, you know, aging. Because I think that that's something that you can do that doesn't have a lot of downtime. It's not that expensive, not that it's cheap, but it's not yeah. <laughs> as expensive as a facelift. Yeah. Um, and it will definitely works really well, like in this jowl area and the neck area for prevention and, and improvement. Does that hurt? Well, I have personally not had it, but the people that I've talked to that had it said that it doesn't, It, but you do have to numb locally. So you do get multiple injections of local anesthetic on your face. I can, um, I can handle that. Yeah. So I think you would tolerate it like really well. There are places where they give you um, a little bit of gas, just like at the dentist, you know, to make you happy, or you can just take, um, like, if you're very nervous, you can take something just to calm your nerves right before, as long as you have somebody to drive you, but it's very well tolerated. Uh, um, the people that I've treated have done really well. Is that supposed to be more effective than all therapy? So it's kind of in the same realm as all therapy. I think it's hard. I don't know if there have been any direct, um, you know, studies comparing both of them. Um, I imagine it also depends on the person too, because one person can get it and they have a, a more dramatic result than someone else. Oh, of course. There's always, there's always differences. The thing you don't get with all therapy that you get with the profound is that you, the microneedling, like that injury to the skin with the needles does also do something more superficial, right? All therapy is only going to go deep in the tissues to tighten it. Um, the profound is have the microneedling. It will do the same thing as a traditional microneedling will in terms of this, the injury and the turnover of the epidermis as well. So some of the things we're talking about just go deeper into the skin, right? I can't right. use the, the same terminology as you. Um, yeah, they're just different layers of the skin, right? So like, if you look at the outer part that turns over all the time, you know, that is just a few microns deep. And then as you go deeper into the dermis, which is the second layer of skin, even within that, there are layers that you're targeting. Some of them where um, the collagen, the elastin fibers um, 
live. So you need to get deep down in there. If you do something that's superficial, it doesn't necessarily always get down deep enough. And all these energy devices can be titrated to reach deeper in there. And just like lasers have different depths, depending on what you're trying to accomplish, which is why if you're going to have an energy device, you really need to go to somebody who knows what they're doing. Like you can't just go anywhere and have a laser because I have seen patients with horrible burns from people that really did not know, um, or didn't have a lot of experience as to what they were doing and the machine wasn't titrated correctly or, and it went too deep and it could be, it could be a significant problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's scary to me. I see a lot of, um, med spa advertisements, Groupons, God, people, yeah. please don't pick, please don't pick your plastic surgeon or whoever your injector, because there was a Groupon. This, that, well, this is not the time to find a bargain. Yeah, I'm going to tell you this because it's, I love that you brought this up. I think one of the biggest things that we are working on in terms of the plastic surgery society is education and the education of the public, right? Because there is a lot that goes into becoming a board certified plastic surgeon. That means you did a residency specific for plastic surgery, and you have to graduate with a certain number of cases in all these diverse categories, right? Um, I did a general surgery residency first. So I did five years of clinical general surgery and then three years of plastic surgery. And there's now a program out of medical school where you can do six years where three of them are general surgery and three are plastics, but you get a little bit more plastics experience early on as well. Um, so like you actually have formal training the people who are training you are board certified plastic surgeons. And you've not just seen a tummy tuck over the weekend, somebody didn't show you how to do a tummy tuck or liposuction over a weekend course. And then you went ahead and did it, right? Like you spent a significant um, amount of time treating thousands of patients in a very multi-system different ways. You passed exams, um, you demonstrated enough knowledge of the basic science and of the clinical sciences. And then once you finish that, you take a formal written board exam. And that is the same for everybody in the country. And you either pass the test or you don't. And if you pass that test, then you've spent nine months practicing as a surgeon, collecting cases. And then you go, usually it's Phoenix, go to Arizona with a bunch of people in the same year as you are and sit in front of a lot of surgeons who are very experienced, sometimes have written your textbook and... Um, have written your textbook and are, are you there? Oh, there you go. Sorry. I don't know why my stupid phone. Um, so, and they've, they've written textbooks, right? So you're some, like a slightly intimidated because you've been reading and talking about these people all the time and they're there asking you questions. They're looking at pictures of your patients because you have to submit your cases and they're showing you pictures of cases that you then have to talk about, I mean, you're sitting with an iPad outside this room and there's eight different pictures and you have about five minutes to wrap your head around, what would you do for these people? And then you walk in there and they ask you questions about it and sometimes make you draw, right? So then you pass that test and you can get your board certification. So it's not just even graduating from residency, you graduate from residency and there's almost a two year process or a year and a half process you go through where you have to demonstrate that you know what you're doing, right? And it doesn't, like that training is not irrelevant, but people do want to bargain 
And when they look at our prices and then they go look at the guy down the road who didn't do the same training, might be a medical doctor, but might have trained in something else, went to a weekend course. It might be that you get away with it, but sometimes you don't, you know, and sometimes we see those complications and it's really hard. And I treated some women that went to a foreign country recently. um, And it's just, you know, it's, it's sad because there were things that you could just wait a little bit longer, save your money and go to somebody who's reputable. Not that we don't make mistakes, not that we're perfect, not that our patients don't have complications, right? Um, But there are things that we can manage ourselves, that we know how to fix the problem, um, that we know how to address it safely. And I think that's really important. A bargain isn't necessarily the right thing to do. Well, a bargain might not be a bargain, right? If, if it ends up having complications that you then have to have someone else fix. I mean, I recently had some women here that ended up being in the hospital for two months, treating post-surgical infections they acquired in a foreign country. Um, It's not irrelevant. And luckily they were insured, you know, because if you come back and you have something horrendous like that happen to you and you don't have health insurance, it's extremely expensive, you know, to be hospitalized for so long. And then the impact of not being at work. Um, I knew someone that went to somewhere here, just 30 minutes away from me, non board certified, not even training plastic surgeon ended up in, at, in the, one of the academic centers, um, with cardiac arrest, like two or three times, you know, I mean, these things are not trivial. And, you know, Mm -hmm. when you look at cosmetic surgery, they're elective, you're doing this to feel better about yourself. Why would you go to the cheapest person on the block that doesn't have the training, but a lot of people don't know, honestly, they don't do it in bad faith. They just don't understand that there's a difference. You know, they see doctor, they're like, okay, this guy's offering this, we assume that they know what they're doing. Um, And like I said, they can get away with doing a lot of things, but um, we're not good enough at telling the public that there's a difference in training and education, what you can expect. Um, Well, I experienced that as a lawyer too. I'm a divorce lawyer. And so many times we get people that just don't want to pay our fee, but they really do need legal counsel. So they'll go somewhere down the street, somewhere cheaper, but it's not someone who really does family law. And so they make mistakes. And then they end up having to come back later to fix the mistakes. And they probably end up spending more than they would have if they had just come to us in the first place. And I will say if someone comes, if someone goes to a bad lawyer, they're, they're not going to die. But when you're talking about having surgery, where these are final permanent results that may or may not be able to even be fixed at all. I just take that so seriously. I don't understand why anybody would um, play around with that. I always laugh too when I see the Groupons for the laser eye surgery. Yeah. You know, I don't really want to risk my eyesight. I'm just going to go to the person. I know that they do this all the time. They're competent, they're qualified, and maybe I I have to pay a little more. And I don't even know what, uh, like teardrop fillers, right? To like improve the dark circles under your eyes. I mean, it can cause people to go blind, right? So, I mean, sometimes I feel like I scare people off, but I like to tell them the truth. Like, this is one thing that could happen. Like, if it gets 
if the filler gets into one of your veins and goes back into your eye and you and it gets into an artery right you can go blind and my duty is to tell you that this is a possibility and i feel like a lot of times people are not consented well they're not told of all the potential things that could go wrong. And I rather scare you and tell you about all the things that could go wrong than not. You know, I've told mothers of five kids who wanted fat augmentation to their buttocks that there's a high, you know, morbidity rate with this procedure. And that if they get a fat embolism, that they're going to die. And there's not much that I can do except support them and hope that it doesn't happen. And, you know, is that something you're willing to go through? Of course, I'm going to do what I technically, what is the safest thing to do, but we're not all infallible. And I've seen really good board certified plastic surgeons have complications from any procedure that we do. Like I've had complications, but the main thing is you got to educate your patients. Well, you got to know what to do to fix the problem. And you got to address that problem quickly. And I find sometimes that people who are not well-trained like are in denial that they even have a complication or take too long to fix it or to find somebody that can help them fix it. Um, and this is the other thing that we have as board certified plastic surgeons, right? You have a network, like I have partners. There's um, in, my, in my practice, because we're in different offices here in the Piedmont area of North Carolina, there is 11 of us and we get together every quarter and we go over our own cases. Like, it's hard to have your partners judge you, right? But I rather them tell me, like, how can I do better? How can I improve this? And they all do the same. Like, we all share so we can continue to learn and do better. Um, and I can call some um, plastic surgeons that I know. And I call my colleagues. I call my co-residents from when I did residency and my attendings. And I tell them, what would you do with this? You know, how would you do this differently? Because like I said, for most things, there's five different ways to do things. Yeah. Um, and some are better in my hands and some are not. And then also understanding your limitations, right? Like as you grow into your practice, I understand where my limitations are and what I can do and what I cannot do. And if I don't feel like I'm the best plastic surgeon for someone, I will guide them towards who I feel will be a good surgeon for them. Um, because I think in the end, it's about making, getting the patient what they want. And that may not be something that, I have enough expertise in. So I have absolutely zero ego and I will let somebody go somewhere else if I think they're going to get a better result. And that's, are you sure you're a surgeon? (laughs) (laughs) I say this, I say that you cannot be a surgeon without being slightly self-centered and narcissistic. It's just like everything in life, it's polarized, right? There's, there's a spectrum. Um, and, You've got to uh, have an awful lot of confidence to cut into somebody. I oh, mean, absolutely. you probably think it's no big deal because you, that's what you do now, but it's a really big deal to take wheel somebody into an operating room, put them <laughs> under anesthesia and cut them open. And, yeah. you know, well, I hope I, I hope I never stop thinking that it's a big deal. I think it's a huge deal and a huge privilege, you know, but I think what comes with good training is that you learn to be more comfortable in that role. But I never want to be so comfortable that I stop taking that into how important this is to that person, right? Because I might have done a thousand breast augmentations, but that person is getting their first one. Sometimes it's their second or third, but you know, like it's, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's happening to them sometimes for the first time. And you need to take that into consideration. And I do get it. Some days it's repetitive. You know, I'm saying the same thing that I just said like two minutes ago to somebody else. Um, 
but you have to like really take the time to kind of share that experience and that expertise. And um, I get nervous. And when I get nervous, I get quiet. I think I'm like different surgeons, you know, like if I get through a part of an operation where I feel like mm, I really got to take it easy now, I got to take my time, you know, um, I'm, I'm somewhere where the anatomy is like tricky and I got to find that nerve to make sure that it's okay or whatnot, or, you know, I'm close to an artery or a place where I know where I could find something, you know, that I don't want to find maybe, um, then I get quiet. So my team now knows that if I'm really quiet, that I'm probably like in a part of the operation that's really critical. So they know how to make it through. Like, this is not the time that we're going to make any sort of comments about the music or, you know, trivial things. They just kind of indulge me. And then we get past that critical part of the operation into the things that are sort of mundane, like, right, you're putting like, you're stitching the skin or something, which to me at this point is like, it's obviously important, but it's a, it's a little bit more, you know, second nature. So that's the point where we can joke around and, you know, talk about the weather, what's been going on in our lives. But um, I know, like I, when I was in general surgery residency, when people sometimes got to the critical point or the difficult part of the operation, they would just yell at you, right? The way that they managed their stress was to yell at you. Um, and I'm like, I'm different than that. Maybe because I don't like that. I didn't like being yelled at at the critical ports of the operation. I'd rather concentrate. But everybody's a little different. But I think all of us, like if you're a good surgeon, you're never going to stop thinking it's a big deal, I think. I think you should always take that into consideration. Like you, you, anything can go south. Yeah. Even the most trivial of, of surgeries. I'm glad you know? to hear that. I wanted to ask you, how important is your weight when you're assessing whether a filler is going to be effective for someone or all therapy or, you know, surgery even. Yeah. I think it's important. Um, you have to take the whole person into consideration, right? Um, I'll usually ask people if they're at their goal weight and how do they maintain that weight? Because I think that's more important than what the weight is in itself. So if you are on a weight loss journey and you lost 40 pounds, but your goal is 60, then there are things that I think are reasonable to intervene and some that are not. And then you may have to understand that I can intervene now, but things are going to change if you do meet that last 20 pound goal, right? So if it's like a tummy tuck, then your skin might sag a little bit more. You might need to have a little bit of a revision. If it's your face, then I can put some fillers, but you might need more right? Or you might be able to get your face and neck lift now, but if you lose weight and where you lose weight is in your face, you might need a revision or a redo, right? Let's say that you're, you're thin and you're stable, but you don't like certain things. It can, you can still, like, sometimes I think it's harder to, to address some of my thin patients that want tummy tucks and things like that, because it makes me more nervous, why? Um, because they're like, I operate on somebody who was a um, bodybuilder. So very little body fat, but they wanted to correct that little separation that happens in your muscles from, from childbirth, right? Well, there's a, a lot less room for error because it's more visible, you know? So like the perfectionist in me that likes to make everything perfect, wants to make sure you have a good result, right? Um, so if you still have 20 pounds to lose, 
I'm going to be thinking my work is not as good because after those 20 pounds, whatever I did is not going to look as good. Right. And then you have somebody who's very thin, who probably nobody else notices those imperfections except for them. They're way more focused on it than I think other people are like, maybe I'm a little off here, but just having seen what my patients are from, like, and what they see, um, there are definitely differences. Like I don't need as much filler on somebody who's thinner in their face than somebody who is, has a little bit more chunkiness to their cheeks, for example. Right. Oh, really? Like, I would have thought the opposite. Yeah, I would have thought they need more. I feel like you can see it. Like sometimes I'll inject the fillers right here. And if they're thin, like they, their skin is thin, you know, and they lost more of that. I feel like I can see it more, you know, um, it just really kind of depends. Like there's all those individual factors, right? Um, well, do I you ever get people though that want changes to their face, but there are changes that if they lost weight, they would see those changes. Or do you not even really get into that? I mean, it's hard well, to I tell someone. It, it's hard to weight. tell because I will ask them, and this has more to do with like breasts and maybe sometimes even face, but um, if they gain or lose weight, I said, if you, when you gain or lose weight, does your face change? Do your breasts change? What rate does it change the most? I have some very thin patients that will come to me and say, I love how my breasts looked when I was breastfeeding. I want that back. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and sometimes I'll look at them and they'll tell me like what implant size they want. And I'm like, oh my God, that's too big. There's no way I'm going to be able to get that in there. I don't know that that's going to be the right size. And they're like, no, I'm putting these sizers on. This is exactly how I was when I breastfed. And then I put that implant and I was like, oh my God, they were right. And I was wrong. Cause like I said, you know, on the spectrum of that narcissistic part, um, I guess I'm maybe on the lower spectrum of it, that sometimes my patients are right, you know, and I try to give them what they want. If I think it's reasonable and try to talk them out what I think is unreasonable, some, you know, um, and what I think it can deliver. So there are differences, but you got to listen to what the patient says. If they're like, well, I can lose 50 pounds, but my face stays like this. Let me show you pictures. And I'm like, okay, then I know that I can pretty much work on your face, regardless of where you are in your journey to gain weight, lose weight or whatnot. If they tell me when I lose weight, I lose weight on my breasts and I, and they want a breast lift. And I say, lose all the way and be stable for a certain amount of time before I mess with them, because you're going to be disappointed. And then I'll be disappointed because I want to give you a one-time surgery. That's going to work well for you. And that's not going to happen. And I think like, sometimes people um, don't appreciate how much harder we are. Like you said, how much harder we are on ourselves as surgeons as well. Like I will look at my result and I will criticize it to no end all the time. I walk in there and I'll look at it and I'll take a deep breath. And I've learned to listen to what my patients think about it because sometimes I'm way more critical of it than they are. Like they love it. And I'm like, well, there's this one millimeter here. That could, you know? yeah, like, and you don't bring that up. Don't bring that up. No, happy. I think that, you know, like we are very critical of ourselves as surgeons. And I think that that's a really important thing to be, um, is to always go back, like look at your own data, see how you're doing from your infection rate, your, your wound care rate, your patient satisfaction rate, but also just like look at your overall results and constantly be criticizing yourself so you can get better. And I do that a lot. I've learned to step back and listen to what people think about the results before I pass any judgment on myself. Um, but you know, I want to deliver a good result. So sometimes when I tell people you really should lose weight, um, and have a BMI, like I have a cutoff of BMI of 35 for like most body procedures. 
Um, but again, not everybody's the same. Some people have a BMI of 40 and their weight's distributed completely different than somebody's whose BMI is 30. So you have to look at the whole individual, but because of our outpatient surgery center and other things, like I have to establish some kind of number so that my co you know coordinator can bring in patients who are ready. But she was just talking to somebody on the phone and they, I guess, told her that they, they were still looking to lose 20 more pounds. And she said, well, why don't you come when you're five pounds away or something like that? And sometimes you just want to come to listen to what is possible. And that's okay, too. Um, but again, I don't like to do and I don't do a lot of procedures on smokers. Um, like that is a hard no for like a facelift. Really? Um, yeah. Why is that? Reduction just poor blood supply to the skin and a lot of wound healing complications and infectious complications. Um, I, I think I'm a little kinder with my breast reconstruction because I feel like it's cancer um, and they can't take the time to stop smoking before the cancer, you know? So sometimes I'll offer it to them, but I, that, but I spend like 30 to 40 minutes telling them like your infection rate is higher. Your wound complication is higher. You're going to lose this implant more often than somebody who's not a smoker. Um, so all that happens, um, as part of the education process, but a breast augmentation, it kind of depends on the patient, but there are most of the body procedures. I just say, no, I'm like, you know, you can take two months to stop smoking and then come see me because you want to have, you can invest all this money and all this time going under general anesthesia. You don't want to have a willing complication. You don't want to have an infection. Um, it's just not worth it. You know, I can't imagine anything. I can't think of anything worse than smoking. Is there anything you can think of that's worse? That's more harmful to us than smoking. Um, bad diet. <laughs> really? It's more harmful than smoking? I don't know if it's more harmful, but I think those two things are high up there. And if, and the other thing that we deal a lot is radiation injury. So it's not something that everybody's going to be exposed to. Um, but I was just talking to a, per, a patient that came in today for a console for a breast reconstruction. And the things in my book that make it the most likely that you're going to lose or have problems um, are smoking, a really high BMI, unfortunately, um, especially like around 40 or more, they're kind of the smoking and that BMI is kind of equivalent in my, at least in my practice in terms of loss or infection rates and complications, and then radiation, because radiation almost does locally to the skin what smoking does to your whole body, right? It starves the tissues of oxygen. Um, so how would someone have exposure to that? Um, this is part of your treatment, you know, for cancer or, or something like that. You wouldn't have it in a regular day-to-day -day life. I think for most individuals, you know, it's going to be smoking and poor diet. Um, obesity is a significant problem in any medical field. I mean, I think it's definitely what's going to crumble our medical system. It is crumbling our system. I've seen young people suffer like car accidents and have like fractured their femur and die because they were obese and they were young. They were like 19 and 20. That wouldn't have happened to them if they were of normal weight. I mean, that's yeah. just the truth, you know? Um, and it's really hard to do, to like, look at the impact of that. Physiologically, I've seen things that are very different. So I think there's the healthy part of it, you know, that these numbers are not exact for everybody. And you might find somebody who really will do well, but, you know, in general, um, maintaining a good, healthy diet, feeling your body, keeping yourself at a reasonable, stable weight, because the up and down is also a big 
issue, um, I think leads to better outcomes in, in life and in health and overall. Yeah, I see your emphasis on the diet. Yeah, I think I see that I think more often now than smoking, you know, because the smokers kind of go at the wayside. And there's plenty of thin people with really bad diets, by the way. Oh, yeah. Skinny fat person. Skinny fat person. And I mean, I've known people who are very tall and of reasonable BMIs are 19 or 20 and their cholesterol is like through the roof. Right. Um, So that's not great either. And some of it is genetically based. Some of it is just that they metabolize that McDonald's better than anybody else. I guess they hide it in their arteries. I don't know. Too much Bojangles. Is that what it's called? Bojangles. Yes. (laughs) Poor thing, I'm gonna get sued by McDonald's and Bojangles now. Oh, no, just fast food in general, I guess we'll say, you know, that way. But, um, you know, because all these things are enjoyable in moderation, right? Like everything in life is enjoyable in moderation. You just have to, but some people just do it like every day, right? And yeah, that, it's the know. standard American diet. Well, yeah, whatever that is, right? Yeah. I know that when you talk to a lot of doctors, listening to your other podcasts, we all talk about our plant-based diets and stuff. So I won't bore anybody with that because I've already heard it. But, um, you know, I think everybody should just eat more whole foods, whatever it is that you do. But it's real food. Yeah, real food. It's just really hard to do, right? Um, And we all know that. Um, And our lives are so fast-paced, right? Stress, sleep, all those things play into a lot of it. Um, And sometimes people want me to fix their weight problem with plastic surgery. And one of the things that we try to be a mantra is that, you know, plastic surgery is not weight loss surgery. Plastic surgery is to contour your body, sometimes to springboard you. I mean, I'll tell you that, like, I lost 13 pounds and then I had lipo and then I lost another 14. Did it help me? Absolutely helped me in my journey and what I was doing, right? It was perfect timing. I was really well counseled by my plastic surgeon who was fantastic, by the way. Um, she's phenomenal. Um, her name is Megan Gruber. So I'm going to give her credit for where credit is is due. She's in Tampa, Florida. Um, you know, and I saw her results. We talked about the work. I talked to her about where I was in my life. Um, I had to have a hysterectomy and I had been on a bunch of hormones before to try to prevent my uterus from killing me. Um, so then I finally got it out um, and stopped taking the hormones, but I had taken a huge toll on me. So then I changed my diet, lost all this weight. And I'm like, I just don't feel like myself yet. And I know it's going to take a lot of time, but I kind of got excited when I saw her results and she said, well, how about you lose about half of what you think you need to come here. We'll do some contouring and we'll see how you do. And then four weeks later, I went to the gym and I'm like, Oh my God, my pants are not rolling underneath my belly anymore. And I just got so much more excited about going to the gym that I go six times a week now. And I'm a little bit too obsessed with it, but you know, like, I think that's kind of how you, you use plastic surgery in your life. Cause that's how I've used it in my life. It's like a springboard, you know, to get you the confidence to do the things that you want to do and to bring out the person who you really are. Right. Um, and I think that's, that's a perfect explanation. Yeah. Because I've had friends say, Oh, I'm, I just want to get lipo. I just want to lose 20 pounds. And then I I'm the one explaining to them, you know, it's not really for that. It's not to make the scale look you know, for you to look lighter on the scale. It's for contouring. If anything else, like you're going to look heavier on the scale immediately after, because you're going to have so much fluid, right. Um, around liposites and all of that. And, you know, it's 
vocal section is irregular and I have little lumps and bumps that I'd love to accept because they're so much better than what I was before. And I tell my patients that, um, and I love telling them that, you know, like it's everything's part of a journey and a process to get you back to self-confidence so you can work in your life to be who you are. I, I wrote this blog thing once about being like a passenger on a train, right? How sometimes if you stop and look and you're just looking at the outside and things are flashing by, but then you get the reflection of yourself like back on the window, right? And then you're like, oh, wow, like who is that person? It's like you spend so much time looking outside of yourself that you forgot to look at who you are. And then that image doesn't match who you feel you are anymore, you know? And I think that's what happens a lot. Like our outside starts aging or things look, you gain a little bit of weight or your arms are a little flabby. You are like, how do I get back to showing to the outside who I really feel like I am on the inside? And Sometimes that is plastic surgery. Sometimes that's not plastic surgery, you know, um, but that's all part of your journey in becoming who you are. And if there is something that we can do to help that, great, right? And sometimes it's me telling patients, no, it's, you, you really need to work in your diet or, you know, this is something you can accomplish at the gym, uh, not something that I'm going to accomplish for you. Um, but it's a partnership, you know, everybody's yeah. working. Like, like I say, I worked, my plastic surgeon worked, and then I worked again. Like, it's so part of a continuum, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It definitely doesn't just fix everything. It's the, not the magic wand that you referenced earlier. Right. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking so much time to talk with me. I do have one more question that might seem um, a little freaky, but eh, I'm just going to ask. It. It. So mm -hmm. when you are applying your scalpel mm -hmm. to somebody, what does it feel like? Is it like cutting into chicken? Yeah. Raw chicken. So our, our knives are a little sharper. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, and it kind of depends, but yeah, it's pretty similar. Actually we practice suturing on chicken breasts and things like that and chicken feet. So it's not that dissimilar, but if you get a really, really sharp knife, but the, the knife's a little lighter and the touch can be a little bit lighter. It depends on which skin you're cutting into. The skin on the face is not the same as the skin on the belly, not the same as the skin. Like let's say if you're cutting in the, um, in the back, the back has a really thick, really thick skin. The back is really thick skin. You know, if people say you gotta get a thick skin. Um, so it's different types of pressures and things like that that you have to apply, but. Do you remember the first time that you actually cut into a person? Um, I don't think I remember the exact first time that I cut into a person, but I will never forget the first time I did an operation all by myself when I was a second year resident. What was that like? Um, well, it was interesting. It was a gunshot wound. Um, we had multiple traumas coming in, multiple people shot at the same time. It was on Christmas day and I was just finishing washing out, a, and at belly, I was in another operating room and my attending came in and he said, Hey, Rosie, go to OR 85 and just do the best that you can. I will be there to help you when I can. And then told me what was going on. And I'm like taking a deep breath, call the intern, tell him to come down and take this patient that I just operating on back to the ICU. And the whole time as I'm walking from the operating room that I was at to this place, 
I'm thinking of one of my co-residents at the time who was, a, I think he was a fourth year at that time, Dan Poos told me, he said, the reason he loved trauma is that the patient came in with an injury and you as the surgeon could only help them because if you didn't do anything, they were gonna die. And if you did something, they might live. So I just kept thinking that the whole time. I've seen this before. I've been in the operating room before. I know the anatomy. I know what I'm supposed to do. Damage control operation, cut down the midline, get in, pack. You know, you're going through it in your mind before you're actually doing it. You walk into that room, it's total chaos. People are looking at you and you're like, okay, I got to do this. If I don't do anything, they're going to die. And if I do something, they may live. Right. And then you kind of just do the checks and balances and you're like, take a deep breath and you do the surgery. And I think that was one of the amazing things about my training program. It doesn't happen as much um, anymore. Um, but, you know, you either got to do something or, or they're going to die. So did he live? Ultimately, no. <laughs> um, yeah. But we made it out of the operating room. So that was a good thing. But, you know, some of these multiple gunshot wounds, they don't necessarily always make it. Yeah. So were you less nervous the next time? Yeah, the next time happened to, well, actually, it was more than two years later, but I was a fourth year resident. And um, yeah, I got called because there were, again, multiple victims. I was not even on the trauma service that time. And I took a second year resident through the case with me and that and that person lived. And again, different injury patterns or whatnot, right? Um, but Sometimes it, it happens and you're there. I'm just thinking that, you know, this might be TMI, but when I get really nervous, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'd be in there like, oh my God, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so one thing about, about operating, which is very interesting because sometimes our cases are very long, right? You get so much into it that you forgot about, you forget about everything else. When I did that second case on myself as a fourth year resident, um, I was breastfeeding at the time. And I, you know, I was in the call room, I had my timing for pumping. And I mean, I was probably due to pump like 15 minutes before I got called to go into this room. And the whole time that I'm in there for like 35, 40 minutes, I'm sweating bullets. <laughs> My breasts are like hard rock. I swear I started leaking milk. <laughs> and I'm sitting there like, I can't think of anything else because I got to save this woman. I got to save this woman, right? You just got to do what you got to do. And then the help came and other people stepped in and came into the operating room because they were done dealing with whatever other disasters were going on at the same time. And then they looked at me and they're like, do you need a break? And I said, yes. Like, you know, because I could have said no and struggled through it, but I don't think that would have been great for anybody else. Like now that you have good, healthy, you know, help that's fresh, that's coming in and you really need a break. I was like, yeah, I'm fine. Like we did enough damage control. We got this girl to this point. I'm going to step out for a few minutes. Right. So it's hard when you're the one driving the ship, if you do have to eat, drink, but what I've learned sometimes you get the patient to a stable place that if you do have something like that, that you can call upon one of your partners, um, or you can leave the patient in a stable place that you can, that you may need to be or do other things. Right. But it's amazing how we just shut everything off. Mm, yeah. I've been in eight, nine hour operations. 
Wow. Without taking any breaks. Where did you get this training? Because it sounds like you saw a lot of action. Uh, so I did my general surgery training at Jackson Memorial Hospital. Um, it's affiliated with the University of Miami. So it's in Miami, Florida. It's a, a, a large, we have a large trauma center independent um, uh, standing free trauma hospital. I think that the highest penetrating trauma centers in the United States are in Miami, Baltimore, LA, um, Dallas, and Maryland. Um, yeah, Baltimore. Is so um, we get a lot of a lot of trauma, a lot of penetrating trauma, um, a lot of gunshot wounds, a lot of knives, um, knife injuries, wow. a lot of things like that. It was an amazing place to train in general surgery because we saw so many different things. I mean, we had people step out of airplanes and call 911. You know, they're coming from all sorts of countries around Latin South America and the Caribbean because they don't have care there. So they would just take a flight here and then call EMS and come to our hospital. So you get to see a diversity of, of things. Um, you know, we also have a, a population that is not necessarily wealthy and this is the county hospital. So people that have not had care for a really long time that they come when they're almost at the end of their life or very advanced disease. So, I, cause I went to medical school in Vermont. So it was very different for me when I came to Miami to I was a fourth year medical student to see things because I was like, wow, like, look at all these things, you know, Vermont's a great state, it has universal health care, lots of people get their screening colonoscopies and the mammograms. So you find things that are very little, you know, and then you come to Miami where people like don't get access to a lot of care and they have like big obstructing tumors and fungi breast masses. So it's very different. Like, um, and I went, when I was looking at different training programs, I'm like, I want to be in a place that's going to give me a wealth of exposure, you know? And when I did plastics, I went out to Massachusetts um, and I did my training at the Leahy Clinic. We went to we went to Maine and we also rotated at the Brigham and Women's Hospitals and Children's Hospital. So you get to see a huge diversity of um, environments and it was really great in, in shaping your training. I think that with like everything in life, it's exposure, right? You especially in the medical field, like you have to push yourself to be exposed to as much as possible. So you have that experience under your belt. Um, so how did you end up in Hickory, North Carolina? Oh, people ask me that all the time. So I went to college in North Carolina at UNC Charlotte and um, was kind of looking to go somewhere warmer. And I looked at in Miami and, you know, Miami is what it is. And there's lots of fantastic plastic surgeons there, but there's a wealth of non-plastic surgeons. And there's just a different um, kind of population that it's tailored to. Um, so I just didn't find the right fit for me there, which was home. So I'm like, if I'm not going to go home, because my parents still live in Miami and have cousins and families there. If I'm not going to go home, I want to go somewhere where I at least know some people have friends. So I had friends from college that all live around this area. Um, and that has a good um, quality of life as well. You know, I graduated, I was 40 and I had two kids. So that was important because I had, I went back to residency four weeks after I had my second kid. You know, I felt like now he's two or three and I maybe get to know him. Right. Um, so when I started looking at jobs, I just love this practice too. It was a physician owned practice. So it was two years into a partnership track. So I was going to be able to influence the direction of where the practice went to be part owner of it, which is kind of important to me um, and be able to guide my practice how I wanted it to go. Um, it's close to a, a large 
you know, center in, in Charlotte, which I knew well from college. Um, and I get to like, like work with amazing different people, which was important to me. Like I wanted to have good partners, people that I liked. Um, and I'm not a very stuck up person. So I like to be in an environment where people are real, you know, yeah. like they're, they're just normal people and people with very interesting lives um, that are very different than me in certain aspects and very much alike me in other aspects. So it's interesting to see that, you know, and there were no women in, in this practice. There were surgeons. There's some, there's female dermatologists and, you know, but there was not a, a woman that was a surgeon. There were nine surgeons and I was the 10th. And I think that that brings something different, a different perspective and a different outlet, maybe you know, like a patient that traveled from Charlotte to come to see me because I was a woman and she's Muslim and she wanted to see a woman. She didn't want a male. So she made, so you have to give people options, you know, and sometimes there's just another option. Not that it makes me necessarily any better, but, you know, yeah. people have all sorts of different levels of comfort and I'm also yeah. Latin. So that brings something different, you know? So now like I have this like increased number of people who are from Latin background that just want somebody that can speak Spanish to them. Do you speak um, Portuguese? I speak Portuguese. Yeah. And Spanish. And Spanish. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Okay. Final question. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Kim Kardashian had a Brazilian butt lift? <laughs> um, most likely. I mean, I know you can't say for sure. So little disclaimer, you, you don't yeah. actually know whether she did or not, but I don't know whether she did or not. Um, Does it look body, mighty suspicious? Yeah. I mean, her body has changed significantly over the years, right? As all of us do. So we've seen her when she was like a teenager, you know, and then she became a mother and, the, and that changed. And you know, you can tailor body with liposuction and other devices that reduce fat in certain areas that make your booty look a little larger. But I mean, I hope that that's all her. I just don't know. I think that there's a good chance. Yeah. Good know. answer. Very diplomatic. <laughs> I mean, I love that diplomatic. I don't know. I feel like I'm going to be in trouble after all this. Well, I always, like, oh, I, fast food chains and Kim Kardashian after they're all coming after you. <laughs> hey, it's good press. Oh, I don't know. Madonna would say that any press is good press, right? Yes. Yes. All right. So if people want to reach out to you just to talk about Kim Kardashian or to maybe get their own Kim Kardashian, butt, what's the best way for them to find you? Uh, well, they can look at our practice website, which is www.ppsd.com and find me under um, the doctors there. Um, they can also find me on Instagram. It's Roseanne Roder, MD. Um, and I have a Facebook page too with that. Um, I'll put all the links in the show notes in case people want to find you. And thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving me 90 minutes and sharing all your secrets. Well, thanks. <laughs> I appreciate it too. As you can tell, I do like to talk and especially because I love what I do. So um, thank you so much for the time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, 
please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.